0: Hello our favorite podcast listeners, it's your girl Consola, I'm hopefully your favorite girl, if not, I hope we get better acquainted and I'm here to introduce our episode of the week to you. This is a bit of a throwback episode, it's one of our favorite episodes, not based on reviews or the number of listens that we've gotten, but just based on our experience recording that episode and the conversation that was had and how much... Information that was um, passed through the episode, and this episode, drum roll please. Okay, that was a bad drum roll. It is episode twenty, and it was our interview with Professor Vahan, Professor Lufemi Vahan to be more specific. And Professor Vahan is the is a professor of African Studies at Amherst College. Um, and during this interview, we just spoke to him. Of the relationship with um, of the relationship between faith and our various African countries how that relationship started um, how it's interconnected with colonialism um, the various portrayals that faith has taken in um, context of our African nation and most importantly the many truths of faith as relating to our thriving continent um, it's a very enjoyable conversation, very informational and you know just a lot of wise words from Professor Vaughan so give that a listen if you may and while you're giving that a listen just to prepare you next week we are preparing an interview with the team at Stairs Business. Um, We spoke to them about their great platform that they created to track the Nigerian elections that took place um, a few months ago. Um, it was very easy to use. You were able to track elections in every single state and see very live updates. It was especially great for those who were not able to participate in the elections themselves. So we just thought, wanted to speak with them about the reasoning behind creating such a platform and, you know, their next great business idea. So be on the lookout or on the out I guess, on the out since so it's a podcast, for that. Thank you, and I hope you have a lovely week. Bye bye. Well, uh, my name is Femi Vaughan. I'm the Alfred uh, Sergeant Lee and Mary M's Professor of African Studies. At Amherst College, uh, prior to arriving at uh, Amherst this summer, um, I was the Geoffrey Canada Professor of African Studies and History at Bowdoin College, and prior to that, I was a professor at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, where I also served as associate provost and associate dean. So I've been in the
1: academy now for quite some time twenty. 27 years. Wow. I, I received my PhD in politics from Oxford University in 1989. Yeah. I should also mention that I, I was born and raised in Ibado, <laughs> southwestern Nigeria. That's extremely important to me. My area of research and scholarship revolves around uh, key questions on modern African history and uh, politics. I am particularly interested in the interactions between state society relations in post-colonial African societies, Uh, questions pertaining to issues of governance and development in post-colonial African states, Uh, new issues arising on migration. And transnationalism mm-hmm. and globalization in the last few decades or so. And uh, finally, I am very much interested in subjects pertaining to religion and state making in West Africa, particularly Nigeria. And I'm particularly interested in, in the interactions between Christianity and Islam in the making of. Uh, the modern Nigerian state. So, in a nutshell, this is my general area of academic expertise and uh,
2: professional interest. That's that's quite a that's quite a breadth of expertise, sir. And uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing some more of your thoughts on that. Um, so, I, I'd like to I'd like to uh, hop right in. You've told us a little bit, a bit about your professional journey, but uh, if you don't mind me asking, perhaps, perhaps a little more of a personal question. What drove you towards this field? Um, I often find it rare to see uh, Africans who have lived in Africa come to other countries and then study Africa. Uh, uh, how did you why did you make those choices choices? Well actually it's not entirely unusual for Africans
1: to study about Africa in the West mm. um, It's very common. In yeah. large measure, and in some ways, I think it, one can say that it's a bit unfortunate. But I don't quite see it that way. Some of the best institutions of higher learning and areas of expertise in African studies in the social sciences and the humanities and the sciences happen to be in leading universities in the West and in the Western world. That's true. Certainly, in the United Kingdom, in the United States, and France, and so on. In the case of uh, the major European powers, it shouldn't be surprising to the degree that these are also the colonial powers in Africa. So part of the colonial project, as one would imagine, is also to study the colonial subject. Mm. Uh, So
0: many leading Western universities as imperial powers
1: also established quite extensive um, expertise in in studying African realities, African experiences, African cultures, African peoples, religion, ethnography, politics, and and so on. Mm. Um, In this country, for example, in the United States, some of the leading centers of African studies and the humanities and the social sciences and the arts and music happen to be um, you know, universities such as University of Wisconsin-Madison is a leading place. UCLA is another leading place. Hmm. Um, well, yeah. Um, and has been, by the way, for Northwestern University no, outside is. of Chicago. Yeah. A leading uh, university to study African issues. Indiana University and Bloomington. Hmm. You will see the tie. And then, of course, you know, the The top Ivy League universities, such as Harvard and Yale and Princeton, have been exceptional places training Africanists, including African scholars, for well over two generations. I see. In in Britain, Oxford and Cambridge are always leaders in African studies. One of the most uh, renowned places for the study of Africa is a part of the University of London College called Source. I'm sure you must have heard of SOAS School, of mm-hmm. Oriental and African Studies. Sores, yep. So, so the leading it's uh, the, the point is that um there's a long tradition of
2: Africans leaving Africa to Just. to study um, various aspects of African African issues all around all around the Western world. Hmm. I suppose what we would we should
1: hope for is that and, and I should mention, um, over the years, particularly as a consequence of decolonization, the first two decades of independence, yes, African universities were able to build up some really outstanding academic programmes also. Although, because of the crisis of the state that so many African countries encountered since mm-hmm. the 1980s, most of these universities have suffered significantly, and the African studies programs and the humanities and the social sciences and the arts have also, you know, suffered. Mm-hmm. Um, right. University of Ibadan used to be a key leader mm-hmm. in various aspects of African studies in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Right. History department was one of the very best. It's actually called the Vidal School of History. Yeah. In the study of Africa, uh, University of Dar es Salaam used to be a, a key leader in the African humanities. Um, the list goes on. In Nigeria, Madubelo University was one of the key leaders in in the study of the you know the Sahel and the Islamic world in in the Sahel and in the Maghreb. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I think what we need to, to, to look for and think about is the revitalization of these African centers of higher learning.
2: I see. So that African universities can become again a, at least a competitor, if not a leader. And uh, in the study of ourselves, at, at, um, in
1: stu- Absolutely. <laughs> uh, education suffers tremendously at factually every level whenever a region of the world or a country experiences major crisis. And it shouldn't surprise you and your audience that many African institutions of Ireland suffer tremendously since the 1980s. That is
3: true. Oh. They're gradually beginning to recover, but, you know, it's very easy to destroy. It's extremely difficult to rebuild. That's true. And it's been... You know, it's been very, very hard to, to overcome uh, the damage that was done uh, in the last 30 years. So we're going through a, a period of reconstruction and recovery. Uh, but it's a very slow process. It's very slow. It's very tedious. Uh,
2: but I am hopeful that uh, we'll continue to move forward. And, and a long
1: answers a very short.
2: <laughs> no, but I, 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 I. Forgive me. No, no problem at all. And I think we all have a better understanding of of your journey thus far, and that's in context with everybody else's and why we're here. I myself uh, came to study in the states as well for reasons similar. Um, my parents, who was, my father, who studied the same degree, um, didn't have to leave the country to do so, whereas uh, uh, it was a better decision for me to do so. Um, and now uh, speaking more about leaving the country and. Uh, one of the things you mentioned earlier was our, our colonial, effectively our colonial masters have had interest in studying us. Now, I would ask, is this, is this, a, did, it, was, did this start pre uh, colonialism or post colonialism? Because certain things would suggest that that's not necessarily the case. And from just the broad view, um, how our countries were all, uh, you know, stitched together, together with that's, that seems to be a very ill-informed process. Some of the comments made by, uh, colonial officers about African shows a, a lack of actual insight into how we actually wear and, and things like that. But, you know, th- is this process of studying us new or has this always happened, even st- since, you know, before the time we were colonized? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have a bit of an unusual, somewhat unique perspective in the ways in which I think about And encourage my students to reflect on the subject of colonialism Uh, I always want to strive to come to the subject from the bottom up not from the top down and that is really to to switch things around it's a a kind of a paradigm shift in other words rather than preoccupy ourselves
1: with what is already well-known and obvious, okay. that is what we talk about what the colonialists do to Africans. Right. I think it'll be a very interesting idea to contemplate what Africans are doing to overcome the, the venom of colonialism, of yeah. colonial incursion and colonial brutality. Yeah if you see what I mean, Uh, in a way that we can contemplate the possibility of African ingenuity, creativity, and imagination.
2: So rather than celebrate...
1: Absolutely. Rather than just simply think of the ways in which colonial rulers are conceiving of colonial policies and implementing Mm -hmm. those policies, I mean, after all, those policies will have to resonate
3: somewhere with some people. Yes. So for me, African agency is central to the ways in which I engage colonial discourse. Okay. I don't mean in any way to dismiss the importance of the imperial project
1: okay. and the colonial project. It's extremely important to pay attention to it without any questions. It's extremely exploitative, it's dehumanizing, it's brutal, and it's vicious. Yes. And its brutality varies significantly from region to region. For example, in settler colonies, in South Africa, in Southern Africa more broadly, Mm -hmm. in what used to be Zimbabwe, for example. In East Africa, in Kenya, those settler colonies, and the case of the Maghreb, we know the story very well of Algeria mm-hmm. and the French. Yeah. So, and then of course the brutality of colonialism in the Belgian okay. Congo is very well known. Yes. The brutality of colonialism in Lusophone Africa is also very well known in Angola, Mozambique, mm-hmm. and Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde. So we know those stories very well, and we should underscore their significance from a political point of view, from a military point of view, from an economic point of view. They are devastating in their capacity to dehumanize people. We have to engage those issues very seriously, and we have to engage their implications and consequences very seriously. The ways in which that past, structurally, has transformed African realities, even up to today. Yes. Right. So it's a process, not an event. Also. It's, it's ongoing. Absolutely. Yeah. Having said that. Yes. Having said all of that, we also know one thing, but we don't really
3: engage it. Africans were making their own history in the face of colonial brutality yes. and colonial dehumanization. Can mm. you expand
2: me, on that?
1: that? For me, that is the central question. Yeah. That is the central question. That is the beginning of the discourse. Of course, not the end of it. Yeah. So it is in the context of colonial invasion, and colonialism, and colonial exploitation, that different African societies were able to remake their own history, Hmm. not just simply resist colonialism, but also Hmm. it's in that context that they imagined a new world, a new possibility, a new new way of making history. Hmm. As women, as men, as poor people, as entrepreneurs, as peasant farmers, as traders, as people who were migrating in large numbers from rural communities to urban areas, looking for, you know, new jobs and building new cities. Mm -hmm. Most of the great modern African cities were largely cities that emerged out of colonialism, So I think it's really very important to think about those kinds of issues in in very real and tangible ways. But there's another layer to the extent to which we overemphasize the significance of the colonial in a kind of a top-down project. Mm. Before colonialism, Africans were already making their own history. Yes.
2: Yes. So I think it's really very important to know that the pre-colonial experiences of Africans are significant. Yeah, it's often easy they to forget.
1: Became the colonial. To the degree that you have to graft a colonial project, its administrative structure, legal, political, economic, social, yeah. safe, whatever, on something that is already there before. I see. So colonial projects, by their very nature, are really about the, 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 the possibility of manipulation, mm. right? People say so much about divide and rule, divide and conquer the indirect rule system and so on. Mm-hmm. So you're building that project on something already there. And yeah. in the process, you're distorting what is already there. We need to account for that kind of distortion. Huh. Right, and we need to also understand how that distorted history is hmm. oftentimes packaged as African traditions.
2: I see. Right,
1: right. Packaged as, but they're really new traditions
2: right. Could you give examples of this, perhaps?
1: Oh, Chief Densley will be a, a case in point. I mean, you okay. know, I I studied African political inst- indigenous political institutions for the first twenty years of my career. Wow. And I, I wrote quite extensively on the subject. Uh, with 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 you know I
2: I say this without in all modesty. Hmm. Um, this my my scholarship on the subject remains arguably at least of my generation. I think the the I. You shouldn't be saying this about yourself. <laughs> Please go ahead. I <laughs> the, think it's well-deserved.
1: The record will speak for itself on yes. this particular subject. So it's a subject I know very well and one in which I built an initial career. I don't write about African traditional political and social authorities anymore, but I, I did all through the late 1980s and 1990s yes. up till about the turn of the century and then I stopped and I started doing something else. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so just to give that example, the the much of what the British and the Belgians used to govern African societies in terms of what they define as the local, the, the native authorities, that's the term the British used. Yes. The native administrative system was really co-opting
3: African traditional political structures. And if you go through that process of co-optation, Hmm. Naturally, you will have to use one potentate of tradition to undermine another potentate. It's only to be expected. Right. So, the subject of using traditional African political systems to govern Africans in a colonial context itself, very much a distortion, right? It's hmm. really a mastery of manipulation. I see. And, and, uh, and um, essentially picking one class of people one ruler against another
1: Hmm. picking and choosing which potentate will do your obedience Hmm. many African rulers were deposed and exiled people don't like to talk
2: yeah. Uh, the, uh, King of Benin right. has a famous example. Oh,
1: um, and amongst many, many others. So, so the subject of British colonialism in Africa is really one of a story of deposition and uh, subverting tradition, so that sometimes what we, what we want to understand as tradition is in fact travesty, huh. right, yeah, but we've well, because we haven't really taken the time to explore those issues systematically to study them, we've come to believe that uh, they're in fact the real tradition. Hmm. So, so there, there are many, many such examples all over Africa. You know, Southern Africa is replete with many examples in Zimbabwe, too many to count. Hmm. Mozambique, Angola, too many to count. Uh, In West Africa, from Ghana to Anglophone West Africa, just many, many examples. Nigeria, Northern Nigeria is full of those stories, and the Yoruba region, where I'm from, has many of such uh, processes of distortion. So, anyway, um, uh, I guess the point here is that when we engage the subject of the colonial. We don't want to simplify it yes. into a binary of the colonizer Versus. and the colonized. Right. It's too simplistic, it's too straightforward, it's too predictable. Hmm. Right. So what is, it's really very much, it's vague and ambiguous. Right. It's the ambiguities of colonialism that is intellectually interesting to right. me.
2: And we end up giving them too much credit for
1: in the process in the process yes we should account for the extreme and we also need to recognize that that colonialism is not the same in all places as See? Northern Nigeria has a long history of an engagement with Islam in the Sahel going back several centuries right. With well-established emirate structures Having gone through a major Islamic reformism in the Jihad of Usman dan fodio mm-hmm. Sokoto Jihad The British built their project, their imperial colonial
2: Hello, I apologize for interrupting your episode again This is your host and I'd just like to talk very briefly about the tragedy in Sierra Leone over the past couple of weeks. Um, a terrible tragedy happened when uh, heavy rains and flooding led to mudslides that have killed upwards of 400 people. Uh, mass burials have been undergone in Sierra Leone and uh, their need of urgent support to find the missing and to bury the dead. Um, I believe that we as Africans should come together and support our fellow Africans, uh, I will put links in the description and the notes for supporting it and I encourage you to pray for the country itself as it recovers from this terrible uh, tragedy and do all you can to reach out to your friends that are perhaps from that country and might be affected. Uh, thank you very much and uh, please continue your listening. Project,
1: the imperial colonial project on this extensive uh, Islamic theocracy.
2: Which is surprising, theocracy. right? Relative to what they did in southern Nigeria.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And was, uh, what they did in southern Nigeria was different. What they did at the same time, at the turn of the 20th century in Zimbabwe, was very different hmm. because the social context, the political context is different. Do you see the point I'm trying to, yes. to? Really, And of course, in part because, I mean, in the case of Zimbabwe and, 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 and Kenya, you have to contend with a settler British population, mm. white population, yes. in ways in which you don't have to worry about, about speaking to the interest of a, of a settler population in West Africa. West Africa is not a settler colony. Yes, that's true. You know, the envir- environmental, ecological conditions are not conducive to Europeans mm. living in West Africa in large numbers. Whereas in the case of Southern Africa, you know, the conditions uh, conducive huh. economic, environmental and, and so on, East Africa is the same. So all these questions are important.
2: Huh. And that's something we don't really think about.
1: We oh yeah, we, we need to think about about colonialism and the landscape, colonialism and the environment, colonialism and ecology, colonialism and and demography. Huh. We we tend to just simplify colonialism into a very rigid category of the colonized and the colonizer. I, I,
2: I do the have colonizer
1: did this to the colonized. colonized. The right. oppressive Never say anything about what the colonial subjects are, how they're responding. Huh. Except occasionally, we'll say, "Well, they resist militarily." Right. And those who resisted at a point of colonial what. Conquest, mm. oftentimes celebrated as what has yes. iconic right. figures who who stood up against the great imperial powers, huh. uh, and they they speak to a particular nationalist history that dominate much of Africa's historical writings yeah. in the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies. Was that perhaps that a, kind, a sorry, a I- kind of history? is extremely limited because it really doesn't speak to the realities of real ordinary people as Mm. women and men Mm. right so history is exciting and fascinating and imaginative but difficult Mm. when we begin to situate it where it ought to reside among real people Mm. their aspirations where they breathe where they make their history, where they make their world anew. Is this a kind a... of a people's history is extremely important too. They're not easy to do. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're difficult to do because in, in doing a people's history that is creative and imaginative, you have to see how the social, the economic, the political, how questions of migration and demography ideas and materials come together social currents are moving back and forth they're not always moving in one direction and playing funny tricks on you Hmm. and
3: they're oftentimes quite unpredictable so what is virtuous and what is vice is not always clearly
2: distinctive and
1: that is where I colonial history, as indeed also post-colonial history becomes very exciting and fascinating.
2: Hmm. Um, history as a subject, I am not trained as an historian. I'm a political scientist by training. I see. Although I've worked in an in
3: history departments now for 27 years. Wow.
1: I've had a good fortune however, of being trained by some of the leading historians of Africa uh, as a graduate student. My old teacher, who passed away a couple of years ago, Terence Ranger was one of the leading historians of Africa in the English-speaking world mm. for easily his entire generation. Anthony Kirk Green also, who is the great historian of Northern Nigeria, was an old teacher of mine. Gavin Williams, the greatest political sociologist of Nigeria, I was fortunate to 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 be in the company of 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 scholars who, even when they're not historians, their work took historicity very seriously. I they were always thinking about the durée of the human experience. Mm. That structures matter a great deal. Mm. Structures are, by their very nature, extremely difficult to change. Mm they very, they, they have, I, hate, I say here, structures, as opposed to, say,
2: institutions. Right. Why do you draw that yeah. distinction?
1: There's a very, structures, institutions, in my mind, you can create, right? You can invent an institution. Mm-hmm. You cannot invent or
2: create a structure. I see. Right? That is the key distinction. A structure comes out of the inner belly
3: of the experience of a people over time over many, many generations, over centuries, mm. right? So you can observe a structure, obviously, in a people, in their ideas, in their mm. practices, in their ideologies, in their religion, their religious pra- in their cosmology, mm. right? You can
1: observe it and reflect upon it in terms of the ways in which they engage their, their ancestors, for example, that you cannot see in a very invisible world. Right In terms of sp- Africans, people argue are spirit people. Structures are about spirits. And spirits are about structures. So some structures you can observe. Some structures you just simply cannot see. They're they reside in the values of people over time. That is the distinction between structures and institutions. All right. so, so institutions are very much something that is essentially, essentially, uh, very. Uh, institutions are temporal, if you if
2: you will. I see. Right. Structures can move between what is temporal and what is transcendence. Hmm. Right what is secular and what is spiritual,
1: hmm. right. right? So so structures are things we pass down from generation to generation to generation. Structures in that regard don't die. Institutions, however, do.
2: I see. If, if I were to take a, a personal lesson for people like me um, and myself, I, I'm, I'm hearing, and you can correct me if this is wrong, is that we perhaps should be... For people interested in change, should be looking more towards um, modifying, ob- observing, understanding, and then modifying existing structures, as yeah. opposed to attempting to invent new institutions. Because
1: uh, 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 you, 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 you said it very well. You said it more eloquently than I can ever say it. <laughs> you know, just you. very much. If you forgive me for saying this, just very much with the brilliance of of youth. <laughs> And you know, it, it, you, I, what I said in about 10, 15, 20 sentences, you boil it down to two sentences.
2: Good. I, I was just and understanding you, and, you, sir. And
1: you, you essentially nailed it. So that to give an example, in our know, very current reality for your generation, as opposed to say my generation, mm-hmm. so I'm aging myself. I don't I want to be presumptuous. I would imagine that I'm a generation ahead of you. That's
2: mine. Well, sorry, I have no problem. I'm in my early 20s. <laughs>
1: okay. So, so, now, since the world that you occupy, and I hope we'll get to talk a bit more about this later, yeah. is what I refer to as the age of globalization. You are the generation of the global era, the global age. Mm-hmm. Your generation can see what my generation just simply cannot see. Mm. Because in your generation, what is local, right? What is national, what is transnational, especially for those who are socially mobile like you. Oftentimes those spaces are collapsed into each other, right? Mm. So you can actually reside in so many different spaces at the same time in the global era. I am a kid of the 70s. For the most part, I can just reside in one place in Ibadan. (laughs) If I write a letter to relatives somewhere else, I'm just writing a letter to them. Mm -hmm. I'm living in a very Ibadan world. Someone now of my social class, of a similar social class, given the new technologies, that we have new forms of social interactions. That individual is actually occupying so many different spaces and practicing so many different rituals and religions and economic activities at the same time, all at once. See, those kinds of questions play out within the context of the flexibility, the malleability, the the imaginative capacity of African African structures. What is keeping them going is actually the traditions, the old age traditions of African societies, without them knowing that is actually what's going on. Those values and practices are still there. I see. In a postmodern world. And that is, so what is providing the stability in a state of, of great... Confusion, dislocation, instability is the structures of African realities going back in time. So you are able to have interesting conversations across the generation and even with people who are long gone, as you reside in Suburbia, Chicago. You you see what I mean? So, So you take that with you everywhere you go. Uh, We see this, for example, in new Pentecostal movements, in African and new African diasporic transnational realities, just as one example. Africans are people of powerful expression of faith, whether as Christians or Muslims or adherents of indigenous African religious beliefs and practices. Mm -hmm. But I always tell people all the time that irrespective of their level of education, whether they're scientists, mathematicians, PhDs, what have you, their profound spirituality is expressed in their collective manifestation of their rituals and their religion. So Nigerians and Ghanaians, for example, will always find, if they're Christians, and people who are connected to charismatic Christianity, they always have their own national, even sometimes ethno-national,
3: Pentecostal, charismatic churches they go to Yes, uh, (laughs) every Sunday, every Wednesday. That Mm. is really where they feel comfortable. They feel that's their safe space
1: in an alien environment. Mm. It's not just simply a place where they go to worship and pray Mm. to their God. They're passionate about their faith, to be sure, Because they do believe, right, that the spirit world is with them, and they have to engage the spirit world. But Mm. it's also a place where they go unconsciously, and sometimes very consciously, to address everyday problems. I see. Those quotidian issues, as well as also the vicissitudes of life. If they have challenges with their children, where do they go? Do they go to a social (laughs) worker? No. Who doesn't quite understand? anything about their emotions hmm. their culture their reality no mm-hmm. do they go to a western psychologist who is who doesn't believe in their humanity no. they don't think so they may go to that to be sure because they advised to do so so they do that but they also go to their local charismatic pentecostal churches where hmm. they have deep and comprehensive community where their emotions, their feelings, their experiences are validated. Where people help them. You, you don't have to. We all want to be in a place where people can finish our sentences.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah.
2: That is true.
1: Not a place where people are asking us to explain our sentences.
2: So, or to repeat them.
1: Or to repeat what we've just said.
2: Yes. Yes. Uh, right. So, I, how many times as an, Af- as an African in the West, the people who told you to repeat what you've said? Yeah, well, no, it's not that they no, can't hear
1: you, yeah. it's not because you're speaking a strange language. It's because they really don't understand what you're saying. And sometimes they don't want to understand what it is you're saying, or even mm-hmm. respect what you have to say.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We all want to be in a place where we're naturally, instinctively validated.
2: I see. We're
1: made like that as humans. That is not an African thing. That's a human thing. Yeah. We don't want to be in a place where we're, we're perceived to be what? Aliens? Yes. Where we're alienated. Right. So Africans naturally go to those spaces. Huh. And, and I don't... I think you. And that's where they bridge the generational divide. So when people say that young Africans are doing well in the UK, in the US, in Canada, getting into good universities and medical schools, and and doing all these things, I said, well, big deal, right? Yeah. For one thing, they're kids of relatively well-to-do people, to be sure. Often times. Parents have good degrees, they're all very well educated, they're drawing on the social power, the social capital they brought back from African countries. And in in a Western, alien environment, where people expect them not to do well, even if their kids are refugees, where Mm -hmm. their societies have been completely dislocated in Somalia, Mm -hmm. or in Liberia, or in Sierra Leone, or what have you. They quickly constitute themselves, huh. right? And uh-huh. they find a way to take advantage of the system. Everybody else is complaining. They'll find themselves in a the local community college very, very quickly. Right, that's true. Very quickly, they're learning a skill very quickly. Huh. Whether as Muslims or Christians, it really doesn't matter. So it is well known that. Uh, in those areas where you have relatively large refugee African populations, Hmm. a large proportion of the children of these refugees are actually a major population in local community colleges, and most of them, within six years, will finish a four-year degree. Their parents, these are kids who, by the way, have lived and grew up as refugees, moving from one refugee camp to another. Yeah, yeah
2: they've of the West. You know, from
1: all they know in their lives essentially is moving from Somalia refugee camps to Kenya to, to you know, to Cairo, to, and then eventually to the West. Hmm. And within the West, they move from perhaps uh, Sobovia, Atlanta, and then they find themselves in Maine or Idaho or whatever. Oh, yeah finally there is in the kids yeah. a very alien environment where the local people just don't know anything about their culture who knows anything in in these communities about the cultures of African societies but they find a way yeah. this is really where that element of ingenuity and creativity comes
2: It's me again, interrupting your listening again. Sorry about that. I just wanted to thank you for subscribing and listening to this episode. I actually also would like to invite you, if you have anything you really care about and you'd love to share with the world, please reach out to me at podsaveafrica at gmail.com and enjoy the rest of your listening. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of your week. And don't forget to share, like, subscribe. Rate me on iTunes, tell your friends, tell your friends' friends, and tell your enemies too. They deserve to listen to Pate of Africa too. Bye. And speaking on the processes of reconstitution, I'm addressing religion specifically. Um, I find more often than not, because of that narrative that has been often created, uh, you know, stunningly, 180 from what you've just uh, expressed, that religion is actually more of a hindrance in, in, in our country, and our communities, and more, more of a divisive rhetoric, as opposed to something that is used to unite us both uh, on the continent and and, and elsewhere. Um, I find, at least in my experience in, in speaking and interacting with many Africans, um, that are abroad, uh, we either oftentimes want to ignore religion in, in its entirety, um, almost such as the way we'd like to ignore tribal, uh, uniquenesses and differences. Um, or, you know, a lot of people now, and, and this, I don't know if this might surprise you, a lot of people are, uh, becoming non-theistic in, in, in its entirety because of that negative reaction. Um, to the influence of religion on, on our community, I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, story. A couple of days ago, that uh, kind of you know blew up and continued to blow up about a church and. Uh, Nigeria that that was attacked and, and a bunch of people were killed and it turns out that there's a whole scheme of uh, criminals funding uh, uh, institutions like that. Um. So so when we see that as the prevailing uh, narrative, like you said, imploding, um, a, a lot of people of this generation who are interested in progress in one in one form or another, um, are starting to look at 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 you know either ignoring uh the faith in to, or the community of faith or whatever uh uh form that comes in and and uh you know are trying to navigate around that because we've only understood it to be divisive and and haven't quite seen perhaps some of the things you've discussed just not so old. if you were to you know is this a good approach to take first of all I, I, and uh if if you don't think it is um what would be your uh your thoughts to share with somebody like that
1: yeah I mean, I, I, I like the way you, you presented this. You, you said it very well. I, I think what, what is important here is to try and separate out what is constant and what is new, right? So let me just sort of take a, a stab at what I think is a constant. In other words, by a constant, I think what my generation and your generation can wrap our heads around Okay, And I would imagine perhaps my parents' generation, too, that as we travel life's journey, we move, we, for those of us who, who are people of faith, and I believe that most Africans are, yes. I believe that most Africans are actually more spiritual people, yeah. more than people of faith. I think there's a distinction there. Okay. To the degree that in 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 Africa, in the African experience, it is not really about faith. It's not really about religion as an institution, right? It's about a cosmological experience. It's about cosmology. I see. Right. So that is really where you want to start the conversation. It's about inhabiting a spirit world. Right. Mm. That is the beginning of it. So there's no word for religion in most African languages. In mm. Yoruba, there's no word for religion. Yeah, mm. There are words for rituals. Right. Yeah. There are, there are words for belief or non-belief, but there's no word for religion.
3: Hmm. So the very idea of religion sure. itself comes out of a
2: particular Eurocentric notion of modernity. I see. I, I never really yeah. thought about that.
1: Think about it that way. Yeah. For what we call religion to make sense to an African, it must resonate in their spiritual consciousness, in their cosmology. So oftentimes when Africans are engaging in discussions of religion in the world, the world religions, for example, Christianity and Islam, those, those conversations, and they go through a complex process of translation I see. within African cosmology. Mm. A world in which, I mean, in, in many African experiences, the reality of heaven and earth is a lot more complicated than see. we see. In the world, in Africa's two dominant world religions of Islam and Christianity, yeah. right. So, um, so what we tend to do unconsciously over the generations is to translate world religions, right? Whether it's Christianity or Islam, yes. Whether it's uh, Anglicanism or Catholicism. Or Pentecostalism which translating them in very dynamic ways into notions of African cosmology even as we reject African cosmology if you see what I so we're saying on the one hand that the the world of the African religion is something we don't do anymore yeah because it's now the world of what Satan and evil and, right yeah right. it's been reduced by missionaries to that huh. and it's also been defined by by Islamic orthodoxy as such. Something you have to move away from. Mm. But guess what? To the degree that religion, for religion to work, for people who occupy a spirit world to function every single day, that religious experience, that is what we call religion, must resonate in the human consciousness mm. and the subconsciousness. Are you, are you, do you see the point I'm making now? Yes. So in, in that vein, in that vein, spirituality is there even yeah. when we ignore it.
2: So in, in a sense we... So
1: so we're, so we're trying all the time. We're, we're doing this basic math unconsciously. We want to expand the scope and deepen the essence of good spirits around us Right?
3: Yes. To protect us.
1: To defend us and our loved ones, our children, our parents, our siblings,
3: Hmm.
1: our lovers. Right? Right. Against what? Against evil spirits.
2: Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So So it's about spirit warfare. (laughs) So, Christ, if you're a Christian,
1: In the Yoruba, in the Nigerian, in the African context, our Christ is not meek and mild. Our Christ is what? A
2: warrior. A a
1: strong, powerful Christ. A Christ that can defend us against horrible things,
2: can defend our loved ones, can protect us. Hmm. Well, if you you see the name we shouted down what sometimes the way we shout to the you know the jesu <laughs> That is
1: why I guess what we call on him mm. we praise him to the high heavens we glorify him mm. we sing and dance his grace and glory to let him know that look you're the champion of life here and beyond and I we see. recognize that because we want the spirit to do what to come down now not tomorrow <laughs> now the second come down now and what defend me
3: right
1: and protect me and advance
3: me i see mm-hmm. so, to so what to get into a good school
2: right. <laughs> yeah yeah
1: to get into a good Ivy League university, to get yeah. into into a good liberal arts college, to get into a good medical school. I mean, I'm not stupid. I know I have to study. Mm. We know already, prayer without work is nothing. Yeah. Guess what? Work without prayer is equally nothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that is yeah. the African world.
3: You I have see. to do
1: both in tandem, yeah.
2: 24-7. So to some degree we... We've modified
1: twenty four seven. See that is the African spirit world.
3: I see. Operating. Whether it's in Brazil, in Atlanta, huh. or in in
1: Nigeria, it is essentially the same thing. Whether it is five hundred years ago or this year, it is very similar process. I see. Whether it's in the Nigerian Ghanaian uh, Kenyan Pentecostal church in London, in Birmingham, mm. In New York, in Chicago, or it's in some Aladura church somewhere. <laughs> yeah. in, uh, you know, in the outskirts of Lagos.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So we've modified religion whether to in, fit.
1: Whether it's the new revivalist, huh? mainstream Protestant and Catholic churches that are becoming more charismatic every single day in African in African countries. So people see this all, you know. These are the realities. So I it, look, and, and I think I think it's okay that when people are younger, they become ambivalent about religion, especially when they're relatively well educated.
2: I see. Why, why do you think? And so? when
1: their world is a bit a bit removed from an African reality, so so it's okay. That does happen. It happens in my generation too. By the way, <laughs> you know, it's a time. It's a time when I was. It's a time when you. you It's the moment when you take time away from church, if you're Christian. Right. Yeah. You know, we know what that age is. It's it's usually (laughs) 20-something. I tell people all the time, eventually you'll go back. Right. Right. You'll go back and you start doing all the things you said you would never do that your parents used to do. Yeah. Well, (laughs) so in a a sense, so I, I, I think it's really... Very important to 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 uh, to know that there's a very extensive scholarship on this subject mm. of some of the most amazing scholars of the subject. I mean, a guy by the name of Robin Hutton, H-O-R-T-O-N, the young Robin Hutton, who lived his life at the at Calabar, taught at the University of Calabar, and theorized some of these things I'm talking about. Wow. And then another guy who passed away, a brilliant English book, by the way, both, both of them English, by the name of John Peel, J.D.Y. Peel, worked in Ife, and Elisha, taught at the University of Ife? Wow. I went to years. high
2: school in Elisha. What? I-, I went to high school in Elisha.
1: Yeah. Wow. Oh. I mean, and, and was a professor at Soares. He died a few years ago. Hmm. And there are so many others. I mean, the, the, there's a, a renowned Nigerian professor at Harvard, Jacobo Lupono. The so mm-hmm. leading scholar of the subject wrote this wonderful book, for Oxford, that it's
2: a must-read. What's it called? If you don't mind sharing, it's it's actually called the Oxford Amber, the Oxford book on the history
1: of religion, something like that. You can Google it; you'll get it. Okay. You know, it's a it's a short history of, of of African religion. I see. Okay, yeah. So it's so, and it's the kind of book you can read in factually in a, in four five days. It's so well written. Okay. Uh, yeah. By the way, there's Oxford Handbook for uh, history of everything now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the series started about ten years ago. Oh, or so. Wow. Pick the subject that you know they they well, it, it's it's constructed. Sorry to go off topic. No, please go To ahead. literally capture every single important issue that mm-hmm. humans have ever experienced. Mm-hmm. and to write it in such a way that the intelligible lay learner can read it from quantum physics to African religions. Wow. wow. And and read it in a week and say, well, now I know something about quantum
2: physics. Okay.
1: Wow. Although I never passed physics in high school.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I had to look into, into that as well. I struggled with quite yeah. a few anyway, subjects. Anyway,
1: so, so I, I think... I think it's really very, I guess the point I'm trying to make is this, uh, that we we draw conclusions, we make authoritative pronouncement on many subjects of which we know very little. That is true. Because, not because we're arrogant, but because, just because we haven't, until you tell people I've already studied it, and they say, oh no, I haven't. But you just made this authoritative statement about what you think is going on, right? but you haven't studied it. Fair enough. So, you know, African realities are like that. It's something that people think they don't have to study because Africans are not supposed to be taken seriously.
2: I see.
1: If you see what I mean... Europeans are supposed to be taken seriously. So guess what? We study everything about Europe and European experiences, right? Before we before we make pronounce them. Not in the case of Africa. Yeah, so this issue about religion is the case in point. Yeah. The issue for me is a lot more complicated than that. How so? Than what people than what uh, how so? I mean just that, that just what people tend to, to make it to be. Right? That the, the generational question you
3: raised, for example. Right. I'm just sort of saying, you know, when you look at the evidence, the evidence just may will, will prove that to be what? Not the case. I see.
1: If you see what I mean, most mm-hmm. diasporic African kids, mm-hmm. right, hang out in churches with their parents. They don't necessarily process religion the way their parents do. Right. Mm-hmm. They may go to the church for other reasons, right? Not necessarily to have a spiritual experience because they don't they're too young to have such. Right. They could very well go just to go and see their friends, mm. who they like to
2: see, who is very much like them, who can finish their sentences for them. I see.
1: I see. So friendship in in this experience is much deeper, more meaningful, more powerful. Than friendship in school, where you're an alien and where you feel uncomfortable, where people laugh at you when you talk about what is African. Mm. Here, you happen to be in an African charismatic Pentecostal church, where everything that is African, at least African of your experience, is celebrated. Mm. And recognized as intrinsically valuable and meaningful and powerful and rich and exciting and what? And fun. <laughs> yeah.
2: Hallelujah. And wadies. guess what?
1: I'm only nine years old for crying out loud. That's all I need. Right. I don't want to be in an environment where when I say my parents do this or they cook that food mm-hmm. and people just say, What? last or it yeah so uh, so now you can see the distinction here between between an african community church why it will make perfect sense for somebody for africans to get up in canada in the u.s and the uk and travel 30 40 minutes to their pentecostal church right or their Sufi mosque. Hmm. And in the process, they've passed at least 10 churches.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's not a convenience issue.
1: Yeah. It's a a question of confirmation and validation. Hmm. I see.
3: That is what the Spirit
0: wants. Hey, thanks for listening to Pod Save Africa. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Part 2 of this episode will continue next week with more on politics, religion, and Africa. See you then!